Romans chapter 11. There are times in Scripture when we are offered clear glimpses into God's great plan for the ages, what we might call the big picture. And in his infinite wisdom, he ordains the beginning and the end and all that lies in between. He knows the future. Indeed, one of the singular claims for men to know the true God from false gods is that the true God knows the future. That's a biblical idea. That's why the Bible is so full of prophecy and why so many of the heroes of the Bible are called prophets. Only God knows the future, and men only know it as God reveals it to them. Miss Cleo does not know the future. God knows the future. And at times, it serves his purpose to clue us in on what is to come, to reveal things that must come to pass because he has ordained that they will come to pass. And in his sovereignty and power, there are no limits so that what he reveals will most certainly be it's been our great privilege these past few months to study Romans chapter 9 through 11, these three really fascinating chapters that answer a lot of very important religious questions. This doesn't work either? Not one. I will switch. How's that? Do I sound like I'm in a barrel now? Mm, okay. These three fascinating chapters in Romans cover some very important religious questions, just as relevant today as they were when they were written, because the issues haven't changed at all. The Apostle Paul in these chapters is dealing with questions of God's faithfulness, God's promises, especially as it relates to what you might call the Jewish question. The Jewish question being, where do the Jews fit in? That's a very important question in the New Testament, and every Christian is still interested in that question because you can't read the Bible without running into it over and over and over again. Are the Jews God's chosen people? Are they still God's chosen people? What does that mean that they're chosen people? Why, why did most of them reject Jesus? Is God finished with those people or not? Or what's going on? How should a Christian think about the Jews? Paul has been answering all of these questions in great detail in these chapters as we've looked at them, and now we're at the end of his answer. And part of what he says involves a mystery. Anybody here like mysteries? Do you like to read mysteries? There's, there's a girl that likes mysteries. Neva does. Well, in the New Testament, a mystery is not usually what we think of when we think of the word mystery. Mystery is something we think that we need to find out, an unknown thing. A mystery novel is fun because we don't know until the end what's going to happen. It's all um, an adventure. But the New Testament word mystery from the Greek word mysterion means almost the opposite. A mystery in the New Testament always means something that was hidden but is now revealed. So really, when you read the word mystery in the New Testament, it's a mystery that's exposed. It's something that you didn't know about that now is being revealed. A mystery was unknown, but now we know. So a mystery is God revealing his secret counsels to us, it's cluing us in, including us. So rather than like most modern mysteries where we don't know till the end, the New Testament is more like a Columbo episode where the crime happens before the police even get there and you see what all the stuff that happens in advance. So now God reveals mysteries for a purpose. He doesn't just throw them out there. He, re he has a very specific purpose. And we pick up on the purpose in the verse where the word actually occurs. So we're going to kind of jump into the middle of our text this morning. Verse 25, 
See if you can pick up on the word there. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Following the grand theme of these chapters, verse 25 is answering a very important part of the Jewish question. But why are we being told this? Well, look at it. He says, lest you be wise in your own estimation. When Gentile Christians look at the Jewish question, there is a temptation to self-aggrandize, to look down our nose or to feel superior somehow. After all, we got Jesus and they didn't get him. They said no and we said yes. We must be so wise, we think. And if that's the way the Christian feels, he has not understood either his own salvation nor the faithfulness of God to his eternal promises. If there is one thing we should have learned about salvation in the book of Romans earlier in the chapters, earlier chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and all that, it is that God brings salvation to us by grace, which is his free gift, unmerited and undeserved by us. So it's not based on our goodness or our wisdom or our achievements. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 tells us. So there's never an appropriate attitude of superiority in a Christian heart towards anyone. And here in chapter 11, Paul reminds us about God's grace in his discussion of the remnant, those Jews in every age, including himself, the apostle, who have embraced Jesus as the Messiah. Was it their wisdom or their works? Well, if you look at verse 5 of chapter 11, Paul says, in the same way then there has also come to be at the present time, just as there was in the Old Testament, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. We looked at that text last week. And in discussing the whole nation of Israel and their general unbelief, Paul told us how that blessed the Gentiles, but also that God intends to reach out through the Gentiles to the Jews. Look at verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as the fall did they, may it never be. But by their transgression... By the unbelief of Israel, that's what he means, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So God's plan is to make Israel jealous for the spiritual life that Gentiles have found in Christ, something that does occur and has occurred in every age, but unfortunately too rarely because of the way Christian attitudes often have been. Typically, the church has become the very thing Paul is warning against in chapter 11. Mistreatment, persecution of the Jews, ghettoization, alienation. So-called Christian nations have often dealt with the Jews cruelly without any legitimate basis or reason except their own prejudices. Now some of that stuff we can explain away. You can go back to the Middle Ages and uh, Christians weren't even allowed to read the Bible in the Middle Ages so nobody, no average Christian ever would have read Romans chapter 11 and even known of the warnings there because the Bible was forbidden to believers as well as um, anybody else. So people did not hear or reflect on Paul's words here. But that hasn't always been the limitation. People that have had the Bible in their hands have had the same general attitudes towards people that are simply different. Even after the Reformation, when the Bible was put in everybody's hands, maybe less so in Protestant countries, not like Spain where the Jews were literally tortured to death frequently by the Spanish Inquisition, but still often there were harsh attitudes and treatment towards the Jewish people. Martin Luther himself wrote a, a tract of one of the last things he wrote in his life, a tirade, really, against the Jews. It's just stupid nonsense if you read it. It's foolish. 
uh, from a great theologian. And his friends told him so. They said, Martin, if you publish this, you're going to destroy your reputation forever. And he did, anyway. And it's something the Nazis found very convenient, trying to take over a Lutheran country that they could point to. Well, look, Martin said almost the same thing. And he did. And Luther knew Romans. He taught Romans. In fact, Luther was very positively disposed towards the Jews in his younger years, hoping the Reformation would find them streaming into the church. But that didn't happen fast enough for him. And in his old age, while his body was wasting away, he let his mind drift off into typical German prejudicial ideas, and he wrote this ugly tract. So we're not immune from the possibilities of these kind of attitudes. That's why Paul is dealing with them. Just recently, the tapes came out from the Nixon White House. Nixon was a notorious anti-Semite. And there's Billy Graham in Nixon's office saying just heart cruel things about Jewish people to a, a, a buddy not knowing he was being taped. It's just shameful. It was sad to read that. Christians must always be above and ready to critique the common ideas of the culture. If the culture has common prejudices, we should be above that. And that's true for all areas of life, isn't it? Don't we govern ourselves by the book? rather than the prevailing winds. You have to be aware in all areas of life of how the world outside of us shapes us and tries to bend our heart in its direction. And it can be through cruel jokes or wicked attitudes or whatever else. But that's true in fashion. That's true in entertainment. That's true in the way we date, the way we conduct ourselves in our marriages. And yes, race relations. We should accept no cultural norms without filtering them through the word of God. And if they don't match up, culture has to go. That's what makes us a light to the world. So our only question should be, what does God say about it? And history would be very different if the church had done that all along in every age. What does God say about it? Of course, some did care about what God said. Most of what we can identify as progress in Western civilization are the direct effects of Bible-believing people. The end of the slave trade, that whole movement was led by evangelical Christians in the British Parliament prison reform, relief for the poor, those things are directly attributable to Christian influence. And yet, there is a danger for the church to fall into common prejudices of our age and our time, whatever they might be. So let's see what else Paul has to say about Christians and Jews. How are we to regard them, we and them? Well, we talked about our obligation to live authentic Christian lives last week in order that they may be attracted to Christ in us. That's what Paul is saying in verses 13 and 14, he says, I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, verse 13, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, a Jewish apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. That was his goal. Picking up today at verse 15, Paul, musing on what has happened and what will happen, he says, For if the rejection of Christ be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? The Jews rejected Christ, and that proved to be an enormous blessing to the world. It was on the cross that Christ reconciled, reconciled the world to God. And the message of reconciliation went out and was accepted with joy by many people who had no previous knowledge of the true God. Pagans. It was just amazing the way the gospel shot across the Roman Empire. Thousands of Jews believed, of course, as well. But on the whole, as a people, they did not. So Paul says, if their rejection did so much good, think of what it will mean when they receive him. It'll be life from the dead. 
And I'll bet you anything, in his mind, he had Ezekiel chapter 37 in his mind, the chapter about the dry bones. I'm not going to read that this morning, but you might want to write Ezekiel 37 next to verse 15 there and go and read that later today. Um, it's really a valuable thing to do. Life and restoration in the kingdom of the Messiah for Israel is the theme of that chapter. Okay, verse 16. And if the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also. And if the root be holy, the branches are too. What's that about? He's connecting Israel's end, the branches, to Israel's beginning, the root. The foundation of the nation of Israel was the covenant that God made with Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. A covenant confirmed to Isaac, his son, and Jacob, his son, and expanded in all the messianic passages throughout the Old Testament. And it's an unconditional covenant of national blessing, personal blessing for Abraham, the national blessing, then universal blessing, including the land that God promised to Abraham. And those promises must be and will be fulfilled. Therefore, Israel has a future that cannot be altered and it cannot be lost because it is based on divine promises. Gentiles are fortunate by God's grace to be included in the blessings of Abraham, but they are still Abraham's blessings. Paul turns to the analogy in verse 17 of, of tree grafting. Anybody ever been involved with fruit trees and grafting vines in there? I know you were a farm gal there. Um, the root, well, let's look at verse 17 first. If some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them, talking to the Gentiles now, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. The root is the Abrahamic promises. The branches are Israel. Some of the branches are broken off in unbelief. Gentiles were grafted in with the remaining Jewish branches and they partake of that rich root. And so verse 18 he says, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root. The root supports you. All the blessings we have in Christ flow from promises made to Abraham, the father of the Jews. We know God through Abraham in that sense. We are devoted to a book written by Jews. Our Lord was Jewish. His apostles were Jews. Truth has been mediated through the Jews. Jesus told a Samaritan woman who was a half-Jewish, half-pagan, had a halfway religion of her own, Samaria, in Samaria, he said to her, salvation is of the Jews. And he was right. So anti-Jewish prejudices simply don't belong in a Christian heart. Do not be arrogant, he says, toward those natural branches. Every blessing we have comes from God's labor through them. Verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's sort of an arrogant tone in that. Quite right, he says, verse 20, but they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Verse 19 is that arrogant attitude. They were lost, but I'm included. I am so sharp. I am so wise. Paul says, you know, other peoples were grafted in as they believed. But don't be arrogant. Respect and fear the fact that the Jews lost the Messiah in unbelief. And that can happen to other people too. And it has. 
You know, if you trace that grafting process, if we can refer to that whole fruit tree thing, through history, it's quite interesting how the branches fall off and are added in at different times. In the first few centuries, Christianity went to the Middle East, it went to the Near East, it went to North Africa, and it went to Europe. It took hold in Europe, surviving the tides of other movements, mainly Islam in the 7th century, which wiped away a lot of the church in those other places. But Europe was no accident. God knew that Europeans had wanderlust and a desire to, uh, and a capacity to conquer and they did. They took over the world. Quite literally, Europeans took over the world in the last few centuries. And Christianity followed along. But that does not reflect a spiritual superiority of Europeans because the European branches have been cut off. Now, this isn't divine revelation. I'm just observing history when I'm telling you this. Europe today is one of the least Christian places on earth. It's about at the level of Nepal. That might be a slight exaggeration, but it's just about like that. They did not fear. They were not faithful. They did not believe. The, you know, the US, United States, the New World, is far more Christian than Europe is today, but we show signs of loss that they displayed before they ceased to be Christian nations. And I'll tell you, the United Nations is taking a look at European nations and contemplating knocking them off the list of Christian nations that are, like Australia a few years ago, that got taken off the list of Christian nations. It just became so nothing and so paganized that it just was removed. Europe is being looked at in the same way. Academic hostility to the Christian faith, cultural hostility, political hostility, we have all those things as they did. We have one thing on our side. Most European countries had the church married to the state. I mean, quite literally. Taxes supported the church. Ministers were paid by the government. The government determined theology. But we're not like that in this country. We were blessed with separation of church and state, so we're independent. If the state falls, we can stand. The state doesn't select our ministers or define our doctrine. Thank the Lord. <laughs> So we have a chance to last a lot longer here. Christians don't need to be a majority to have a preserving influence, but we do need to be faithful. And that's what Paul is saying. The real story in the 21st century and the end of the 20th century are the new branches. Asia and Africa and Latin America are the new rising centers of believing Christianity. Countries like Korea send missionaries to Germany and France and England. That's really going on. And Latin American countries are doing that too. That's how much things have changed. He says, don't be conceited, verse 20, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Europeans were arrogant and conceited and did not fear. Not all of them, of course, but the majority as a people. So now they are lost cultures and they are groping in darkness. They are broken off branches. And so Paul warns us all. Verse 22, Behold then, he says, the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. If you continue in his kindness. Branches that don't continue in God's kindness are no longer part of the tree. God's severity removes them. By the way, Romans 11.22, you might want to mark it or something. That's one of those scriptures that keeps your theology straight. People who like to invent their own deities, 
um, like to pick and choose the things about God they want to believe. You ever notice that in life? My God is like this, some people might say. Or my God is as though God was determined, his reality was determined based on our opinion. I think he's like a dolphin or whatever, those kind of things. God, of course, is what he is, whether we like it or not, or care about it or not, or have a different opinion about it or not. He's reality, and our opinion doesn't change reality. Some people imagine a God who is just kind. He would never hurt a flea, let alone flood the world or, or judge a city or anything like that. Some people imagine a God who is only severe. He's unapproachable. He's a killjoy. He's stern. He's a glowering old man on the throne, hating the thought of someone ever having a good time down there on the earth. The stern God. Both ideas dishonor the God who really is there. Study the Bible and you find a rich, complex, divine nature, holy and good, vengeful and compassionate, just and merciful. Behold then, he says, the kindness and severity of God. Keeps you straight. Paul warns us to find and remain in God's kindness, which is found by being in Christ by faith. Unbelief, he says, brings about severity. Not because God arbitrarily said, hey, by the way, I'm looking for faith. If you don't have faith, uh, you're doomed. That's severity. That's just what I happen to like. I like faith. No, the reality behind that is that unbelief is an expression of human rebellion. That is the issue. God is the sovereign. Where do we stand in relationship to his rule? God is God and you are not, as they might say on late night television. Unbelief is man in revolution against heaven, against perfect goodness, against truth, against all that is worthy of honor and devotion. Unbelief, just think of what that word means. It means I don't trust God. It'd be as if you put it on your dollar bill. We don't trust in God. Nothing can be worse than that. That is Satanism, if you think about it. That's exactly what Satan's mentality is. I don't trust God. In God, I do not trust. Well, related to this subject, verse 23, Paul affirms the possibility of the natural branches, the Jews, being grafted back in. They also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from that which is by nature a wild olive tree, God went out there and cut you off from your pagan religion and grafted you in, were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So God went out there and grabbed you by the scruff of the neck, you pagan dogs, and brought you to Christ and changed your life and transformed the world. He says, and you think it's going to be hard for him to take the natural branches who know, who have the law, who have the Old Testament, who've thought it through, and bring them back in? You think he can't do that? He says, you can do that. He sets up the reasonable principle that this could happen. Then in verse 25, the bombshell, God has decreed that this will happen, he says. It not only could happen, that's where our word mystery comes in. Verse 25, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until, there's a time word, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Israel has been hardened judicially for a time, it is partial, 
because there are always a remnant of believing Jews in the church. That's what he was saying in the first part of the chapter. And it is temporary. There is a time when Israel as a people will be hardened no more. When? He says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The Bible says that Christ will have in heaven people from every tribe and tongue and nation on the earth as a part of his great congregation. That process continues even this morning and is moving quickly throughout the world. But the time is known only to God when it will be done. And he will have all the people he wants or needs or is decided upon. By the way, Jesus used that expression, times of the Gentiles being fulfilled in Luke chapter 21 verse 24 with reference to his second coming. He said all those in things are going to happen very rapidly when the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Same language, same idea. So the Bible always associates Israel's ultimate faith with Messiah's coming in power. Those two things always belong together, Old and New Testament. It's a mystery. It's something that was hidden, but it's been revealed ahead of time now to us. So God must save Israel because he promised that he would. That's why Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 26 and 27. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now verse 28 is profoundly important to the Christian heart and mind with regard to the Jews. Remember, Paul is writing in the middle of the first century. We're sitting in the 21st century looking back and we're saying, gosh, the church has kind of beat up on the Jews over the years. And it's true in many cultures, in many places. But in Paul's day, it was the other way around. The Jews were the persecutors. They were the ones putting Christians in prison, beating them, murdering them in cases, causing riots. Um, that was Paul's personal experience. So he writes in verse 28, this is really interesting that he would even think this way. From the standpoint of the gospel, he says, they are enemies for your sake, because they're always trying to interfere with us spreading it. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. He's saying to the Christian Gentile, your enemies, the Jews who persecute you, are beloved by God for the sake of the fathers. That's, that's a very Christ-like attitude. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That attitude is based on a theological premise, and that is that God never breaks a promise. And he's made promises to the Jews, which he will keep. He's called them, He's given them gifts, and he will fulfill his calling. He will. Enemies of the gospel, yes. They drive us out. They kill us. They cause civic authorities to suspect us. They riot over us. They jail us. They beat us, he says. But they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So you can't dismiss them. You can't hate them or think for even a moment that God is done with them because he made promises to a man named Abraham in Paul's day 2,000 years ago, in our day 4,000 years ago, and God's going to keep those promises. How long are God's promises good for? Until they're fulfilled. And they'll always be fulfilled. The final thing to remember, Gentile Christian, says Paul, they are sinners and so are you. Verse 30, just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy. He's always going back to reaching out to them. For God has shut up all in disobedience 
that he might show mercy to all. Everyone falls short, and that's God's way of bringing us to the Savior, Jesus Christ, who is all grace and goodness and mercy. All have disobeyed, but mercy rules at the end. Mercy governs the conclusion. So the last word will be mercy, and God is executing a plan that involves mercy. Severity, yes, but mercy to all in Christ. What is left, then, but to praise God? It's really interesting because Romans 9 through 11 form this unit of theology, this separate piece in the whole book. And the end of the, end of the chapter, of verse 11, the end of that whole section, what can he do but praise God for God's infinite wisdom? The only fitting response that Paul can find to what God has chosen to do and how he's revealed himself is to praise him. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Who was first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. There is nothing to add to that. Next week we'll look at chapter 12. The whole tone and thrust of the book of Romans changes dramatically. It's all been theology. We've been studying theology solid for a year. And next week it all changes. He gets practical, real practical, right away. Typical Paul. Let's conclude our service this morning with a song. Um, open your hymnals if you got them, or if you know it, you might know it by heart, the doxology.